I want to welcome you back to our Wednesday night study, When Sinners Say I Do, and hope you've been enjoying it. Again, if you want to, if you missed any of the studies or Sunday morning services or Sunday school, go to BathChapel.Church. There's a lot of different ways you can share uh, with uh, friends and family, or, or you can listen. Um, some of you may not have the uh, internet that well. Uh, you can listen to the podcast, or we have a YouTube channel and also on Facebook Live. But if you go to BathChapel.Church, that's a way for you to uh, see our, our Sunday school, which we have virtual Sunday school at 9.30. We have our Sunday service, uh, w- which we physically meet. That's the only service we're meeting that right now, 10.20 in the gym. But we also air that at 6 o'clock on Sunday nights. And then we have this Wednesday night Bible study um, where sinners say I do, where we're looking at the sin nature that we deal with, and it's not just about marriage. You can go back and look at all those series and blocks, and, and so if you missed out on anything, it's all right there. Also, we have online giving, or you can give through our P.O. box or physically in our service, but if you have a need, you can email us or call us. Our mission's open on Wednesdays from 9 to noon, and we help with food and clothing and different things. And so stay connected, and if you have any needs or ways we can pray for you, pastchapel.church or call the church, and we'll definitely get back to you. Let's open up in prayer. Lord, thank you for this evening and this opportunity to be together. I pray speak to our hearts and help us to understand the power that we have with the Holy Spirit inside us to deal with the sin nature that is inside us and that we have the hope of salvation, dear Lord, that we are holding on to. Speak, we ask, Holy Spirit, look in our lives. In your name, Jesus, amen. So we're looking at the surge in the scalpel and our sin, spiritual surgery for sinners. And we see in 1 Samuel 13, 14 mentions that David, we're going to be looking at, was a man after God's own heart. But yet, David fell in so many ways. And we look at the section where David is confronted by Nathan to deal with his sin. And we're going to look at that. Nathan stood before a man he loved, but hardly recognized the king deceived and drifting perilously towards destruction. And we've all been there with somebody in our lives. And Nathan told David the story of the rich man that had taken the poor man's sheep and had had the, had slaughtered it, and, and, and David was enraged about it. And we need to look at the fact, the need for a Nathan. First, God pursues sinners, and God, God's love is relentless. And even when we are blinded by sin, he refuses to let go. And God pursued David with a tireless love. Second, God uses sinners to pursue sinners. Think about that. What we normally see is God uses somebody to pursue a sinner, but no, God uses sinners to pursue sinners, and that helps with that. And Nathan was a sinner just like David, but God used him. It's called accountability. And Nathan's role in David's restoration foreshadows something very significant about the gospel. Jesus, God's son, would later come to confront our sins. Nathan's role in David's restoration foreshadows something very significant about the gospel. Jesus, God's son, would later come to confront our sin. And there, was, there, through his sacrifice on the cross, he has put away sin and reconciled us to God. And those, and those granted a Savior are called to an intimate uh, relationship with the Savior. So far in this, in this study, we begin to learn about the intimate Christ in, of mercy and forgiveness. Here we're going to look at um, a biblical confrontation and reproof, reproof for the purpose of reconciliation. Biblical confirmation and reproof for the purpose of reconciliation. 
Paul says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5, verses uh, 17 through 21, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is the reconciliation between a sinner and God and between a sinner and the one they have sinned against. This is a ministry not only to God's enemies for their salvation, but it's the focus of what we're going to look at tonight. To God's sin-struggling children of their own ongoing growth, for their own ongoing growth, and relationship with Him. To whomever we may be ministering reconciliation, God literally makes this appeal that we can be reconciled. You see this additionally in James 3.18. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And what we have to see, the effect of unrepentant sin harms ourselves, it harms our families, our relationships, our churches, our businesses, our ministries, our careers in very devastating ways. Over time, even moral misdemeanors, things we might think are little, and sins that seem petty compared to David's can do deep damage. And what we need to really listen to tonight, the key thing is we need a Nathan. We all need someone who can discern a, the slow drift or a rapid freefall from God. Look us in the eye and say, you're the one. That may be your spouse. That may be your children. That hopefully you have somebody that you're accountable, some, someone that is in your life. Who will take on the ministry of reconciliation? This needs to be someone appointed by God that is close enough to see and humble enough to be concerned more about the, God's righteousness than others' opinions. That's a very unique person, and it should be all of us to an extent. What will you do in these times when the truth is absolutely necessary? What will you do when, you're, when that person needs a nascent? To answer this, let's return back to Matthew 7. And you, and you begin in chapter 4 and talking about it's the speck and the log again. And Matthew 7 verses 3 and 5 says this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The passage gives two reasons why we must begin with our own logs. First, dealing with our own sin helps us to see clearly. I got something in my eye, so how can I tell you what is in your eye? It improves our discernment and clears away much of the debris obstructing our view. So we've got to be able to see clearly to help the other person. Second, a little lumber work prepares me for the Savior's ultimate goal. And only self-examination can provide the humble clarity of sight I need to serve my other, other people. Think about it. Only humble exa- self-examination helps me be humble enough to say, Hey, it's not about me. I know that I'm a sinner. But I need to be able to see myself clearly so I can see what's going on in your life clearly. 
my own logging efforts position me for spec removal. You've got to start with yourself first. The work of grace and truth. And um, how sinners uh, in life, we are called to be merciful and withhold judgment, but we are also called to challenge one another. Hebrews uh, 3, verses uh, 12 through 13 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We can fulfill the call of restoration by turning a wandering believer back to God, to the God who saves. We can love by bringing the truth in gracious ways, applying grace through speaking the truth. We care about that, but a lot of times we don't speak it in love. And when we do this ministry, we not only fulfill the role of Nathan, we represent the Lord Jesus Christ who came to dwell among us full of grace and truth. John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So they can see more grace and more truth of Jesus through us when we do this the right way. The surgeon, the saint, and sin. Matthew Henry once said, The three qualifications of a good surgeon are prerequisite and a reprover. One that is going to be the Nathan in somebody's life. He should have an eagle's eye, a lion's heart, and a lady's hand. In short, he shouldn't be... He, in short... Uh, in short, he should be endued, endowed with wisdom, courage, and meekness. So look at that again. An eagle's eye. See clearly. A lion's heart, ferocious and courageous enough to deal with it. And a lady's hand, the gentleness, the meekness, to do it in a way. And everybody knows that mom usually had that gentleness and meekness to do that. The, the essential instrument, instruments in the work that has never changed are wisdom, courage, and meekness. The next thing, a good surgeon displays wisdom. The first part. Nathan's approach to David is, is biblical wisdom on display. Nathan chose the right time, and then he did by reaching out and going to the palace to an old friend and a king. And so he chose the right time, and he did it in the right way. To become truly wise in confronting sin, here are a couple of critical surgical techniques that we need to employ. First of all, um, patients should know they need help. <laughs> okay? Uh, they need to know they need help. Recognizing that each one will probably need con- uh, corrective surgery from time to time, give one another permission to wield the scalpel as needed. This is accountability. This is, this is what I hope the key that you've gotten from the study is, for some reason, I'm saved and I've gotten over my sin issue. No, you haven't. You're saved. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You're conscious of it, and you're going to struggle with sin the rest of your life. And so we need to understand part of that is the accountability that, hey, I'm going to need surgery once in a while by people that I can trust that have the logs out of their own eye that I'm in accountability with. And the wounds of a brother, the wounds of a friend are, are better than that of an enemy. And the fact that you know when they're, they're, that scalpel hits is that they're trying in a loving way to help you and you're trying to help them. An excellent and humble way to demonstrate your ongoing willingness to come under the biblical knife is to pursue correction regularly. I'm not going to say I like that. But the only thing that saved me in ministry is the fact that I have met with men and also those that I have been under my whole time. And I've been transparent as much as possible. 
Who you're seeing right here is who you'd see if I was off the camera. And that is the only thing that has saved me. But that's as a pastor. That should be everyone. That regularly you make yourself accountable. We don't like that. We love our independence. But God didn't design us for that. He designed us for a relationship with Him. He designed us for a relationship with each other. And when I, when I pursue correction, it tells, tells others that I'm welcome to operate on because I know I need the help. This is the problem. I've, whenever I hear somebody say, I've overcome that, I think of 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, the one who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Really? Because I'm a man in need of a Savior every day. You're a man and a woman in need of accountability. You need to have the ability that you can be operated on by those that are trustworthy in your life at any time. They never cut blindly. The better prepared we are to speak the truth, the more likely the truth will be heard and taken to heart. This is the problem. We do the shotgun method a lot, where bam, I'm going to tell you how the cow eats the cabbage. But what happens to James 1.19, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Take your time. Think about it. Discern. Here are some diagnostic pre-op questions to help you operate wisely when it's time for you to give your spiritual reproof to someone else. So think about these questions. Have I prayed for God's wisdom and acknowledged my need for His help in serving this person? It would help if you prayed about it. In prayer, we are reminded of our surgical limitations. You know, John, uh, you know, only God can do that. Prayer brings the fear of the Lord to the forefront of our minds. And this is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, I don't understand what's going on. I can't figure this out on my own. Lord, help me. And if we connect with God before we move towards sinners, it becomes far easier to draw them back to Him. Go to God first, so you're getting close to God. Before you go to sinners, so you're closer to God. So that's closer for them to get to God, because you're being closer for God. If that's confusing, you'll figure it out later. But here's another question. Are my observations based upon patterns of behavior or merely a single incident? Do I see something consistent in their lives or is this just something that happened? Because, you know, that's what I say all the time. If I'm walking with God consistently, that's not perfection. That's walking with God. But if this is just a one-time thing, we've got to ask that question. Is this something that's developing in their life that I'm seeing more? Or is this just a one-time thing? Am I content to address one area of concern even if I'm aware of several? Uh, we like doing this. Well, since you're listening to me... I'm going to unload the whole apple cart. No. You know, when that engine light comes on or that warning light comes on, you usually try to deal with the thing of the most importance. And that's what we need to do. It can, be discouragingly, it can be discouragingly hard to focus on more than one area of growth at a time. A good surgeon keeps that in mind. Another question. Am I committed to making incisions no, longer, no larger than absolutely necessary? You don't. Tell the doctor, I just want the biggest scar you can, even though you just need to make a little slit. No. You need to make an incision. You need to insert the truth. But why do you need to make it worse than it already is? To be wise in grace is to see that a well-considered word, carefully applied, is good medicine. That This is the soul you're slicing open. Go very slowly and cut very gently. Another question, am I prepared to humbly offer an observation rather than an assumption or a conclusion? This kind of hit me where I live. 
Because so many times we want to assume from what we see, or we want to tell them this is what you need to do, instead of just like, I see this in you, and leave it, and see where that goes. The, uh, the most helpful surgery is often exploratory. Uh, similarity, the, mo uh, the most helpful reproof frequently comes in the form of open, not leading questions, because questions create the dialogue that invites more penetrating observation. In other words, you just leave it open I, and let them think about it. Let them talk. Another question. This is my goal to promote God. Is it my goal to promote God's truth or my preference? And we've got to really search our hearts. This is where our sin nature comes in. I would like them if they acted better like this. Well, who gives a rip, potato chip? It needs to be this. What does God think? What does God want? doesn't matter. Our best reproof will come if our goal is to help them hear God's word, take it to heart, and ultimately respond to it. Our observations should be designed to lead to God's truth, not replace it. Not my truth. doesn't matter my opinion. All that matters is God's. A good surgeon displays courage, so displayed wisdom. It might seem that life would be easier if we took the timid path of avoiding certain unfortunate truths or winking at selected sins, but always as uh, we'll always reap what we sow. Galatians 6, uh, 7 through 9 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, they will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary and well-doing. For due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so we need to be very careful that we need to not ignore stuff, but understand that what we sow we will reap. And so if we sow not doing something, something's going to grow there. And so if we avoid confrontation, we're just get, we just get confrontation anyway because sin unaddressed is sin unconfined and an attempt to preserve peace, we are sowing war. A second kind of courage is also necessary for the spiritual surgeon. It's the first kind, if the first kind is like the boldness needed to begin surgery, running the scalpel across the sterilized flesh to open the first incision, the second kind um, of courage keeps you at work for as long as it takes to finish and then keeps you caring and engaged to the recovery period as well. This is the courage that commits to staying involved in personal ministry well after we begin to speak. See, this is where a lot of us like. I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to drop this this bomb, let it explode, and I hope it works out for you. Because we don't want to. And you know, in the, in, the, in the American Christian life and the church, we've kind of done that. But it's called follow up. And it's called discipleship. And it's called living life together. That yes, it's going to press in our time. But our goal is that we are disciples. And that we learn to follow all that God has taught us. And so that means it's messy. And that means it takes our whole life. And that means that we walk with one another. James 5, 16 says, Let us confess our sins one another and pray for one another. And be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. That means time. If you're getting so... Uh, you're, you're spending a lot of time if you're confessing to one another. Praying for one another. That's a lifetime. And it's messy. And that it's a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful thing. A good surgeon is committed not only to the operation, but to the post-op care as well. All. Repentance and change 
friend simply takes time. That's what he says here. Another thing, courageous surgeons encourage repentance. Courageous surgeons encourage repentance. Part of the gospel good news is that, and we'll kind of see this in the next chapter, is that the grace doesn't stop at the cross. It springs from the cross with invasive and endless surgical strength to ensure that we change, that our lives uh, please God, and that we arrive at home as heaven at, at the end. Jude 1.24 says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That we make it to the end. In repentance, we cooperate with God in his, in his marvelous work, playing a crucial part that he expects us to fulfill and gives us the grace to execute. Indeed, we're always invited by God to work out, as Philippians uh, 2.12 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in the presence, but more in the absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That It said work out, not work for, or work to keep. And what that means is you're saved. You're saved as you're going to be. But why are you sitting around here? At, at the end of your life, don't you want to know Christ more and be more like Christ and want the things of Christ? This is the working out of our salvation. He saved us. We are now free to stumble, free to struggle. We don't struggle to be free. And this is the working out of our salvation. This is why the confrontation, this is why the accountability, this is why the keeping short accounts is that we're trying to become more Christ-like. Iron, sharpening iron as we sharpen each other. Um, we, we we see this in Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in your sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Galatians uh, uh, 5.16 tells us to walk by the Spirit. And then we see in Titus 2.12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He is calling us to holiness and to encounter the Holy Spirit sent to convict the world of sin. And we see this in John 6, 8 says this, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Thus to experience the cleansing and faith-inspiring work of, God, of godly sorrow over sin. This is what we see in, in David as the gravity of his sin begins to draw on him. And he, he goes on and says, he says in Second Samuel, I've sinned against the Lord. He understands that. He recognizes this. As Paul was saying in Second Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 10, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. And it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffer no loss through us. For a godly grief excuse me, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is the key. Nobody wants to feel bad. Nobody wants to grieve over their sins. But godly grief is good to lead to your salvation. Godly grief is good to lead to your holiness. And as you see here clearly in Scripture, that it is biblical to grieve godly. Only godly grief brings repentance, and only repentance testifies to the surgical effect of God's truth applied to our sinful hearts. A good surgeon displays meekness. Meekness is a great gospel word. Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus talks about it 
in Matthew 5, 5. But we, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Paul uh, talks about in Colossians 3, 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. James also urged this in James 1.12, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And so we see here meekness has nothing to do with being weak or passive. Meekness is power, hara- <coughs> excuse me, power harassed by love. I love that. Harassed by love. I love you so much I'm not going to let you go is an expression of humility that will not bristle or defend when challenged about its motives. I'm wrong. It's what I've called to do. I need to do what's right. To be meek is not to be weak or vulnerable, but to be committed to uh, others that you will sacrifice for their good. A meek person uses the futility of, sees the futility of responding to sin with sin. This is the problem. You sin against me, so I'm going to sin against you. No, I'm going to be meek. I'm going to be humble because of what Christ's love has done for me. And so, therefore, I'm not going to return your sin with me sinning. Meekness. In chapter 6, we talked about forgiveness willingly absorbs the cost of sin without seeking retaliation or payment. What empowers that kind of heavenly response is meekness. That's the only way we can do it. The meek person also understands some biblical principles of communication that you need to apply in life. Here's some of them. Being annoyed is not an invitation to speak. (laughs) Being annoyed is not an invitation to speak. I need to learn that better. Because a lot of times I get annoyed and then I speak. And that Proverbs uh, 12.16 says this, The vexation of the fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. We've got to learn to watch our mouths. Another, um, you go you go back to a soft answer has more power than powerful than a wrathful tongue. Proverbs uh, fifteen one says this: a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh one stirs up anger. And so it's amazing with your children when they're upset and you're correcting them that if you yell, they tend to get louder. But if you say it's softer, they may get scared. I don't know, you know. But I'm saying that how that diffuses a lot of things. Gentle speech encourages life. Uh, notice this in Proverbs 15:4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but preserves, uh, but per, uh, pervasiveness, and it breaks the spirit. So it's a gentle tongue. It's a gentle speech. It encourages life. But so many times they got rough with me, so I want to get rough. And finally, all weakness exhibits a common goal. The meek person wants not only to reflect the meekness of God. Second Corinthians 10:1 says this. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face-to-face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. Almost sounds like Paul was online. <laughs> I'm going to be bold to you when I write to you, but I get to face-to-face, I'm going to be gentle. He's not being a wimp on that. But it's amazing how sometimes in, in, he was writing these letters, and so they could have time to digest that and see... And, and a lot of times in a text we can't read emotion, and that can be a good or bad thing. But when he got to him, he, when he got uh, to them physically, we see this uh, gentleness that he had for him. What is my agenda? What is my motivation in bringing some sin to their attention? Often these motivations are less than noble. A meek person seeking to help the other will make their relationship with God their first priority. In other words, I've got to be right with God. 
I don't want to make sure they're right with God. And so we've got to be really careful before we approach someone. That's why the final stage of any correction must be encouraging them toward God and trust and entrusting them to God. So you encourage them towards God. And then if you've spoken, this has been the hardest thing for me. I'll go back to some situations that I, 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 on my part they're resolved, but on the other person's part they're not resolved. And I'll go over and over that. And one thing that's helped me, a book that I was reading on prayer, talked about how, how you need to leave, leave those cookies in the oven and let God watch them and you go off. You need to cast your care upon Him and let Him deal with that. And this is what we need to do. Once we have, we have pointed and encouraged them towards God, this is what God says, then we need to also trust them to God and continue to give it to God. Grace is an essential healing agent in the operating room of sin. It supplies the reason for hope and power for change. This point is more important, and we're going to spend uh, another chapter on it. A good surgeon carries the cross right into the operating room. It's the first and last thing they reach for in surgery, and it both opens and closes the patient. Surgery is only successful when we move people beyond their problems to the great physician, which is Jesus Christ. As we get ready to close here, we see Nathan's rebuke did not stop God's discipline of David, but but it did prepare him for it. And David's personal journaling, you can look it up after this. In Psalms 51, you see a man that has been humbled through this. In Psalms 51, I encourage you to look at that, verses 3 and 4. And that whole chapter is after David had been rebuked by Nathan doing the biblical way. Throughout history, men and women of God have gone to David's confession and used it in their own lives to realize getting back with God. At the end of David's life, when even his sons were against him and no one stood with him though at all, Nathan was his friend. The surgeon of his soul was there. He was wise, he was courageous, and he was meek. Their friendship was forged in the heat of all these things going on in his life. The longer uh, we live a Nathan love kind of life, we need to point people to the great physician, full of grace and truth. And so the bottom line is, is may you welcome the Nathan, that great physician that the great physician has placed in your life. Maybe you don't have a Nathan. Maybe just listening to this Bible study or, or church is the thing that is your Nathan. I hope it's way more than that because you know what? You need more than what's electronically that you can't touch and that, that you can't talk to. You need a Nathan in your life. And if you pray for one, God will provide one. Maybe you don't have a church family and, and you've been looking at this. You know, when you feel comfortable, you need to physically come to the services. You need to interact and call. You need to have those people in your life because they're there. And you also need to be a Nathan. I encourage you to go back and look at this and, and see these aspects of how carefully that you have to look at the sin in your own life before you deal with others. And you have to be courageous and use wisdom and meekness in these things. But we need accountability. Because I will say this right now. The only reason I am still here in ministry and life is because of the Nathans in my life and the Nathans that I continue to have in my life. Therefore, the one who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Lord, I pray that we are, have an open heart to accountability and that we follow you strongly. And I ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.